Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm 42. Psalm chapter 42 and chapter 43. We're looking this evening at thirsty souls. Thirsty souls. Psalm 42. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 42 and 43. These are the words of God. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with the sound of a shout of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall still praise him for the salvation of his presence. O oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and the Mount Mizar. Deep calls at deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. By day, Yahweh will command his loving kindness, and by night, his song will be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries reproach me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall still praise him, the salvation of my presence and my God. Give justice to me, O God, and plead my case against an unholy nation. O protect me from the deceitful and unrighteous man, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall still praise him, the salvation of my presence and my God. Let's pray. Our Father and Almighty God, in Christ are hidden all the wisdom uh, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word, and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom through Christ our Lord, and amen. You can be seated. The title of this message is Thirsty Souls, but it could just as well be titled Bedraggled Hearts Awakened by the Light of Grace and Mercy. That's just a little Puritan-esque title. I like thinking of long Puritan titles from time to time. Uh, Thirsty Souls is obviously a little less cumbersome, so we'll just stick with that. Psalm 42 and 43 are, in some Hebrew manuscripts, one song. It's just one song put together. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, has them separated. And that's why they're separated in your Bibles today, is because of, because of that tradition. But regardless of, of those things, we're going to treat them as a single unit for two reasons. You'll note, first of all, there is no superscript or title in Psalm 43. Usually you have a title that's there that is a part of the original Hebrew, and uh, that title is missing in chapter 43. And that's not really normal for the, the Psalter. In Psalm 42, though, says, For the choir director, a mascal of the sons of Korah. So that's an interesting thing. It's not normal to not have a, a title there. The refrain, the thing that's repeated three times of Psalm 42, is also repeated in Psalm 43. So that's why people think they belong together anyway. The worshiper cries out to his very own soul, effectively telling himself to praise God. And that shows up in chapter 42 twice, in verse 5 and 11, and then it shows up in chapter 43, there in verse 5. So tonight, is, it's my goal to deal with this issue, the, the problem of spiritual depression, and even depression in general. Uh, no doubt people have, have gone through that. Hopefully this is something you will be able to think through. 
And I think these two psalms together really give us a lot of great parameters to consider. And we have to keep in mind also the words of Jesus when dealing with this subject. For example, when we get to the Newer Testament, we have Jesus telling us in Matthew 5, verse 6, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We also know from John's Gospel in chapter 4 and chapter 6, and we also know from the book of Revelation, that Jesus is the source of the water that satisfies the soul. This metaphor is repeated, uh, this idea of the deer panting for water. Jesus himself also is the source of that water. He satisfies the soul. And as we've done this entire series, we have to keep in mind the gospel context in order to see the fullness, fullness of the text. Now, many, many ancient saints endured bouts of suffering and despondency. Many, many saints have done so. Even Jesus describes himself and his own anguish. Uh, Matthew 26, 38, Jesus says to his disciples, My soul is deeply grieved. These are the words of Christ. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Talking about his disciples keeping watch in the, in the garden. The, uh, right before his crucifixion. And the trial and crucifixion. In John 12, 27, Jesus also said, Now my soul has become dismayed. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Even back as early as John 12, Jesus himself refers to this hour, the hour of his cross. That's repeated oftentimes in the Gospel of John. That is the suffering and the passion of Christ. He feels the weight of it because he knows that's where battle, the battle is going to be fought. And that battle will be fought by him sacrificing himself for his own people. So with a world in need of further sanctification, there is no doubt that we too may face times of deep discouragement and disheartenment. We may face times. A lot of people are facing that right now. Times of deep depression, deep discouragement, deep disheartenment. Now the two Psalms joined together are about a man's desperate need for the life-sustaining power that only the living God provides. That's how it's framed. He is in desperate need. He's a man of desperation. He needs the life-sustaining power that he knows only God provides, only the living God, the source of all light. He needs that presence. These psalms together, they recall the festivals and the ceremonies that took place at the temple in Jerusalem to praise the living God uh, for Passover and even the Feast of Booths and these other festivals, they would chant many of these psalms on their way to Jerusalem to, to worship God, and they had fond memories of it. Clearly here, the writer has a fond memory of those events. And the prayerful worshiper is to go beyond wallowing in private grief and instead enter into the community that's been fashioned by Yahweh in order to, to exercise a certain hope in the midst of that despair. So we too, as the people of God, joined together by Christ in moments of despair, need to learn how to take heart, how to encourage one another, how to serve one another in love, as Galatians tells us. And I think that all of that is in spite of the crisis. In spite of whatever's going on out there, there is still the call of the people of God to exercise hope in the midst of despair. This is a psalm. Uh, these two psalms, they're essentially liturgical poetry. It's a rehearsal of the worship, service, praise of God. Um, here we learn that the disquieted soul, the anxious soul, is a thirsty soul. If you experience depression, bouts of despondency, um, perhaps things just aren't feeling right for you in that regard. If you're there, that means you're thirsty. You need water. That's the language here of the psalmist. And of course, this requires knowing where the fountain of all grace comes from. So the worship, praise, the ordinances, the covenant signs, preaching, all of those are helpful tools for realigning the soul with Christ the King. So let's look at our passage. I want to give you a quick outline here, just a bird's eye view. First, the, there's a complaint that is raised with lamentation and vexation, and uh, it describes the nature of his longing. That's verses 1 through 4. So we have a complaint. Oftentimes, these complaints 
aren't complaints in a sinful sense, but they're just petitions to God for some situation, some circumstance. So it's okay for you to go to God. I'm stressed to the max. My job is frustrating me. I need your help. That's a thirsty soul who's going to the fountain. Now, the refrain of verse 5 is put in place as a formulation of trust and hope that must come from what we call the religious root of man, his heart and his, or his soul. The soul and the heart I take to mean the same thing. Um, not the physical heart, kids, <laughs> in that sense, but the center of yourself, the ego, as some call it, the, the, who you are, who, what makes you you. Second, in verses 6 through 10, there is another lament, and it explains his utter despair and feelings of, of forsakenness. Um, oftentimes people will cry out, God just feels so far from me. Now that is a real feeling. That is a real sense of despondency and forsakenness. But, as I always say, it's not so much God has removed himself from you, you have chosen to remove yourself from him. So he's there with you. You have his Holy Spirit. You confess Christ. You're baptized in his covenant. You are a part of the kingdom. You are in that. But if you feel like you're lost, it's because you've lost yourself. And you need a soul realignment. You need an adjustment, as it were. So again, we have the refrain comes back so that he can experience inner peace once again. Third section, chapter 43, verses 1 through 4. We have a petition, a prayer, uh, a vindication and restoration. So in this section, we smash these two chapters together. We have three strophes with a thrice-repeated refrain. Three sections, but also three refrains the same thing said repeatedly. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Uh, why are you disturbed or in turmoil within me? That is repeated three times. So two complaints. By the way, if all you do is complain to God, you complain to God, you, you may have a problem. We have two complaints. It's outweighed by a prayer for vindication and three songs for hope. So make sure your prayers for hope outweigh your complaints. Look at verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Notice how many times Elohim is used here, God. Yahweh's covenant name is not used here, by the way. It's used predominantly in the first book of Psalms, the first uh, 41 uh, chapters, I think it is. Um, and then it's not used as much. And that, that's kind of normal in the book of Psalms. It goes back and forth. But notice how many times God is used. My soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? God is, God is invoked here repeatedly. These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead in procession to the house of God. That's the temple festival celebration. He, he used to do that with a sound, with the sound of a shout of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. And then he gets to his refrain. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall still praise him for the salvation of his presence. So the nature of this man's longing is like into a drought. It's a rather striking image. This condition of thirstiness of a parched deer is likened to a man's need for the life-sustaining God. He is parched. He is thirsty, like the deer looking for water in a drought. That's the metaphor. And right from the start, we're kind of thrust into the feelings of despair and despondency and depression. And uh, the human body, of course, cannot live without water any more than the soul can live without God, which is to say it absolutely cannot. Human, human souls, your soul, the heart of you, the foundation of what makes you you, uh, that, that thing in there that animates your body, your physical body, united in unison with your, the physical and the spiritual, human souls correspond to God. Because God is the creator and the sustainer. When that relationship is severed, the soul or the human heart is, is hungry. It's thirsty. It's trying to latch on to something. It's starved for satisfaction. 
And the psalmist cries out. He can't make his usual pilgrimage to the temple for whatever reason. We don't know. The only water this man can find are the tears coming out of his eyes. He can't endure the taunts. Where is your God? People say that today still. And of course, the answer in this time was that, well, at the temple, of course. That's where our God is. He's at the temple. That's the place where heaven and earth meet. But, but the worshiper cannot be there. The, the psalmist cries out in verse 4, knowing exactly what is the solution and what's missing in his life, the presence of God at the temple. That's what's missing. When, when, things, when things in your life aren't right, the soul becomes desolate, and you're searching for comfort, you're searching for consolation. The human heart will always try to latch onto something. We'll come back to this. But that's just the way, the, the, the central function of the heart, it will always do that. It will always try to latch onto something for some pleasure, some satisfaction. Verse 5 again, that's the refrain. It's repeated again in verse 11. It's also repeated in chapter 43, verse 5. And this refrain is important. It's absolutely the point of the psalm. This is a faith that is in process of begetting more faith. It is, it is faith that may be weak, maybe uh, somewhat you know, in turmoil, but it's grasping at, as best as it can to the living God. And he asks himself, note the question, he asks himself, the ego heart of man, the center of you, yourself, he turns to himself and says, why are you in despair, O my soul? It's like two men talking to each other. He turns it inward on himself and asks a question. He, he asks himself a question. So there's inner, the, the, the inner turmoil requires sober self-reflection. He, he craves the highest good. He knows God is the highest good that he should desire. And thus he tells himself, look, self, get yourself squared away. To, to, to allay his, his propensity to despair. Why be disturbed, he says to himself. Why, why are you disturbed, self? Instead, wait. Some translations say hope. I think the ESV says hope. Wait for God with an unshakable hope. God is the unchangeable, unshakable Lord. Tarry in your life with an, expect, an, uh, an expectation, like an, you have this desire, this expectant hope. Soul, listen. Hope in God. Listen, the, the redirecting of the human heart, the human ego, the human self towards the things of God is what it means to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. To redirect yourself. Because no one else is as, as responsible to you as you are to yourself. We are, as the body of Christ, accountable to one another, but you are accountable to yourself. The faith function of the heart, indeed of every human heart, believer or not, is the center of your being. That is what makes you, you. The faith, cent the, the, the faith that's there in the heart, the exercise of faith, is the center of your, your being. The soul is the self. And frankly, you must attend to it. You must attend to it. More on that later. Look at verse 6. Oh, my God, he says, my soul. Notice that he says, my God. My soul is in despair within me. He almost hints at that refrain again. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and, and the peaks of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. By day, Yahweh will command his loving kindness, and by night, his song will be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Same thing again. Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As a shattering of my bones. You ever felt so bad that you felt like your bones were shattered? Not just when you have a fever that's high. As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? And he hits it again. He tells himself, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall still praise him, the salvation of my presence and my God. The, the depths of his despair is, is further explained. 
He is situated and located at Mount Hermon, the, the northern part of the Jordan River. He, he's dislocated from his heart. He's there, but where is his heart? His heart is in Jerusalem with the presence of God. Enemies have taunted him. That's what cowards do. The, the water of God's presence is now running up against the water of the enemies that often feel like engulf us. The, the water and the waves are sometimes a reference to metaphors uh, that are t- like troubles in life. He, he is drowning and the undertow continues to drag him further and further down. Again, the enemies taunt, taunt where, where is your God? The, the skeptics and the unbelievers pose the question in such a manner as to oppress the righteous one. Where is your flying spaghetti monster? They say. Spiritual struggle, you can feel the struggle that creeps in as he asks to God his rock, he asks the question, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? But this is not from unbelief or he wouldn't have called God his rock. This is a real struggle stemming from real faith. It is the turmoil that we experience in the midst of a faithful confession. He he loves God, no doubt. He loves God, but he's also dealing with very pressing matters in his life. Day and night, however, Yahweh will command his loving kindness, and his song will be with me. So, consequently, he's a man... He's a conflicted man with duplicitous possibilities knocking at his door. Temptation to put part of his heart elsewhere. Will he let himself fall completely into the pit of despair? No, he won't. Hence, he goes back in verse 11 to the same refrain, telling his soul. Telling his soul. And look at chapter 43. Give justice to me, O God, and plead my case against an unholy nation. Oh, protect me from the deceitful and unrighteous man, for you are the God of my strength. Note this tension in this text here. Verse 2. You are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He says it again. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain and, and to your dwelling places Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre, the musical instrument, the the banjo, (laughs) the guitar, I shall praise you, O God, my God. And then he hits himself again, right in the soul. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall still praise him, the salvation of my presence and my God. This solution to this predicament is, is given. There is comfort to be had in God. There is restoration to be experienced in, in, in being pursued by God. How can the psalmist be vindicated when he's drowning in a sea of what feels like his enemies encamping around him? How can he possibly be vindicated? Well, the answer here is in chapter 43. Here God is called on to be his defense attorney, to come to his aid. And admittedly, the the psalmist is still weak. He's still full of dejection, feelings of despair, which is why he needs God to act and to act urgently. What is the problem? Well, he says here, the unholy nation or an ungodly people have once again threatened his peace. He feels like he's just surrounded by pagans who want him dead. He's in despair. The, The taunts of the unbeliever make him feel like God has cast him off. They may not have been the direct result of this calamity, but they certainly aren't helping things like Job's friends. The social and cultural position of Israel, that's represented in the the psalmist's prayers, felt as though God had left them to the fake mercy of the unfaithful nations. A lot of people think this is written while they were in exile. So of course, like, what are you doing, God? Questions we ask today, what are you doing, God, in our nation? Because it seems like we're being cast off. It seems like things are going really bad, really fast. We can sympathize with him. In this case, though, the soul is thirsty. The soul is plagued with desperation. He needs God to protect him from deceitful and unrighteous men. God is the God of strength. But what's the deal? You are the God of strength. Why does it look like you're weak? 
Well, light and truth, he says. Light and truth are weapons to call upon. Light and truth are weapons to call upon. God must come to the rescue. God's, God's light is his delivering presence. God's light is his salvation. Light is this presence of God for which the, the writer longs for. A longing for the face of God to bask in the truth, in the light of truth. That's the mark of true spirituality. Show me a man who is desperate before God, calling upon the truth of God to bring him to his knees and convict him, and I'll show you someone who understands spirituality. The hope is for the faithful worshiper to be brought to God's presence so that he can be renewed in order to to praise the glory of God. So despite his melancholy, he wants to go to God, and he calls God his exceeding joy. I love that phrase. The hope spelled out in the third rehearsal of the refrain is for God to act, for the truth to settle in the core of his very being. And that's where I'd like to spend the rest of our time. Basic to Christianity is the confession that all of life depends on God. We acknowledge that. All of life depends on God. He is, in fact, sovereign. He is in control. He does predestine. He declares the end from the beginning. All of life stems from him. All of created order depends on God and God upholding the universe. And from the beating heart to the winds and rain, uh, even the heat, (laughs) all of life owes not only its genesis to God, but its basic function as well. Uh, I've been reading quite a bit of of reformational philosophy. In in reformational philosophy, we're talking about two things. Uh, what we call the law side and the subject function side of creation, and I'll explain that. There is a fixed law of God that cannot be ultimately broken apart. The the law is a reflection and an extension of who God is in his very nature, and that's unchanging. You don't change that. No one can climb to heaven and alter it. That's the law side of creation. Everything is the way it is because God said that that's the way it is. All of these aspects of life. And we can't, we can't cross that boundary because we are creatures. So that's the God side of things. But then there's the creaturely side of things, and that's the function side, the su- subject side of the created order, wherein things function in accordance to their God-given design, and they do so in variegated or temporal aspects. Think of sciences, the laws of science, the laws of math. Those things are unchanging because they come from God, but we can't escape those things. It's just the way it is. And I mention this here because any sort of attempted deviation from this reality is a result of sin, or at the very least, an attempt at sin. And I'm defining sin as the attempted usurpation of God's law order. And that, that could be because of some imagined epistemology where we think that there's knowledge apart from God or, or some vain speculation about what we think. You know what everybody's talking about these days is aliens. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're like positing something outside of what God has revealed through creation and through his word. So sin attempts to usurp that. Sin attempts to usurp gender binary, for example. Sin attempts to usurp what marriage is supposed to be. All of those types of things. Now, to put it differently, though, the struggle for sanctification in your life, in my life, always results from being pulled in one or two directions. Either toward the will of God in Christ or toward the pretended autonomy of human volition. Those are the poles here. That's sanctification. You're either being pulled in that direction or pulled in another direction, and all of that starts in your heart. So we know, on the one hand, we have the treasures of wisdom and knowledge to which we can avail ourselves in Christ, the true treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But on the other hand, we have the perceived treasures of wisdom and knowledge to which we can avail ourselves in our own autonomous reasoning, in our own, in our own manner of living, doing things the way we think we should do. And just so you know, that's the most foundational thing you could think of in terms of sanctification and holiness. It's either availing yourselves of Christ in that moment or availing yourselves to your own concoction. 
That's the pull. That's the tension. And Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. We know there's no neutrality. Either you love one and hate the other. Um, but that's, that's how it goes. And it's either God or man. It's either biblical religion or it's humanism. We know that that's the tension here. But the structure of law is always unchanging because God, as a simple and spiritual being, is immutable. He is unchanging. So th- when God says, thou shalt not murder... That is a law that is put in place that is fixed. It, it transcends time because it comes from God, and we can't alter that. But that's the structure of the law. It just is what it is. But now we're talking about the direction of the law. The direction of the law, when that is tampered with, when men prefer their own lusts, like our father Adam, then we have a problem. We, we, we can't change who God is. We can't manipulate His law So we will try to change the direction of it. We will try our best as creatures to destroy it, to to make it fit however we want it to fit. So apart from the grace of God, the heart is tempted by all sorts of duplicitous thoughts and behaviors. Every day, every single one of us is tempted by that. We are tempted to not obey Christ, but instead obey ourselves or some other perceived thing. That, that is a temptation that is there until the day of death. And it, if we're not careful, this is where it gets tricky, if we're not careful, we too as Christians, saved by the grace of Christ, by faith alone and Christ alone, we too can be tempted to sort of collect those idols and hide them in there and not let anybody see them. And, and, and put on a smile on Sunday when we're in fellowship and then sort of exist the way you want the rest of the week when nobody knows. Isn't, that's a real temptation, right? However, here's the thing. When, when you read a passage like this, you can feel the tension. You can feel it. We all wake up every single morning knowing that the world isn't quite right. Right? We know I mean, we also know that we're not quite right sometimes either. We don't need anybody to tell us that. We don't need the television. We don't need social media to tell us that the world isn't right. That just exacerbates the condition. That just clouds it and makes it worse when you get inundated with it. Our own naive day-to-day experience makes it obvious that even our thoughts and intentions can run roughshod over God and neighbor. At any moment, you can slander your brother and sister in Christ and not care about it at all. And you can do that just in a, like that. The flick of a switch. So we know that something isn't quite right. We know that sin is, is real. It's a deviation from God's standard. And we experience doubt. Um, we can be lured in by temptations uh, very quickly. We can let our desire of something immoral or, or unjust or whatever, let that sort of spill out into how we choose to act or what we choose to think. You know, there, there's a real, if you're honest with yourself, there's a real wrestling in your heart, isn't there? We feel it. The religious root of our being is the soul, what the Bible calls the heart. Our desires, our thoughts, our actions stem from this central locus. And apart from Christ, the heart is polluted and desperately wicked, as Jeremiah says it. And he, and he says, who can know it? That's his question. And accordingly, any, any struggle that one may have when dealing with this world, or even dealing with yourself, will ultimately and invariably take place in a cage match in your own heart. That, I mean, you, <laughs> it is a full-on cage match in your heart as you struggle and wrestle with the Holy Spirit day in and day out. And any, any of those struggles start there when you're tempted to put your eyes on something or someone you shouldn't, when you're tempted to say something about someone that you shouldn't. There is a cage match going on there. People are throwing each other against the, <laughs> against the ropes. It is a wrestling match of the century. And as a consequence, we must always take heed of spiritual matters and true religion. Church, if you get anything out of this, get this. There must be a constant watchfulness over the state of your own soul. 
There must be a constant, not once a week, not once a month. Every day, every hour, you must have a constant watchfulness over the state of your own soul. For instance, if you are prone to discontentment in your life, you may be tempted to waste hours upon hours on social media or Netflix or YouTube or other websites which help you, as you perceive it, essentially dull the pain of having to face your own sin and foolishness. And people do it with anything. Alcohol, sexuality, addiction, you name it. It doesn't matter. You will be tempted to suppress that sin because you're tired of watching yourself. You're tired of speaking to your soul. You're weary. But in the weariness, you're supposed to keep watch. You can't let your guard down. Thus, to give yourself over to these things is is a failure to be a watchman on the wall of your own life. Now in our text, the psalmist does not let his mind wander and his heart go unchallenged. He doesn't just despair and that's it. He doesn't let his mind wander and his heart go unchallenged. He deals with himself by talking to himself, not listening to himself. I'm going to quote from Lloyd-Jones here in a minute, but that's essentially the heart of this passage, is that Christians are people who do not listen to themselves, they talk to themselves. And the old joke about if you answer yourself, maybe you're crazy, that, you know. No, it's okay, you should wrestle. Wrestle like Jacob. Christian, the Christian deals with himself by talking to himself, not listening to himself. And this is where spiritual depression ties in. Now, regarding any sort of depression, and there are varying degrees of it, we acknowledge, no doubt, the necessity of reorienting one's life cannot be overstated. When you are at a five-alarm fire in your heart, you need to deal with yourself, and you can't just let it go. Now, I've discussed depression and the physical, spiritual components in it back when we did the Reconstructing the Heart series. I don't want to get too far into it here, but just note that reading your Bible, staying in the Word, uh, in prayer, um, making sure that you have good gut health, (laughs) all of those things are equally important. You don't have to choose between them. Your, Your physical and spiritual life ought to be treated in a manner that promotes health and healing. And reorienting your life could look like a change. It could look like a change. Uh, Eating habits or more exercise, scheduling your week more consistently, uh, reading more, praying more, fellowshipping more, serving others more intentionally, uh, discarding the pablum that consumes your time. These are, these, these are physical aspects and these are spiritual aspects. And those things we should weigh and we should honestly consider. At any rate, reorienting your life is of the utmost of importance. For instance, let me ask a cutting question. Do you long for God? Do you? Do you long for God? Can you, can you say that you really do? Are you able, like the psalmist, to get to the end of yourself so that the insatiable longing for God looks like a near-death experience. A deer that is parched in the middle of a drought looking for water, is that you? Would people describe your relationship and devotion to God in this manner? Ask that to your spouse or your friend. In your experience of of me, do I complain more than I praise God? In your experience of me, uh, do I appear to look like I have this insatiable appetite for the living God? Be honest. Would people say, yes, that man or that woman cares deeply about the things of God. His life is orderly. Uh, He serves at every turn he can. He's there to meet needs. He exhibits or she exhibits maturity and wisdom. And most of all, he he or she pays close attention to their soul. Would people describe you like that? Furthermore, a mark of true spirituality means that outward losses do not dictate inward realities. 
Outward losses do not dictate inward realities. That is, despair and hope both exist in this world. They both exist, so both can be used as a vehicle to spiritual realignment. Uh, John Piper might say something like, don't waste your, your depression. But that's true. Don't waste your suffering. Go to God in it, right? Give it to God. When, when the world throws all that it can in you, all that it can at you, think of a statism or inflation or gas prices, you know, loss of basic dignity and God-given rights, you know, stay home, save lives, who cares if you can't pay the bills. When those outward losses start to dictate the inward reality, does, does that change you? Do you let those outward things dictate the inward fellowship that you have with the Holy Spirit? Have you allowed your circumstances to direct your doctrine in your life? If so, you need help. And uh, this is something I've said quite a bit, and I think it's very, very, very telling. But what you do in times of trouble, trouble reveals who you really are. What you do in times of trouble, when, when the pressure's on, how you act, how you respond, that tells us who you really are. And I'm not even talking just about external pressure. I'm talking about internal pressure that you've foisted upon yourself because you would rather say something you shouldn't or do something you shouldn't. Does that disrupt the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in your heart? What you do in those times tells us who you really are. There will always, friends, there will always be conflict in the heart, at least until glory. And the whispers of the devil can become the shouts of the inner man, especially if we start to distrust our blood-bought favor with God. Those whispers can become a huge megaphone in your own heart where you start to believe those lies. You start to repeat those lies. You know, I have no meaning. I have no purpose. You fall into despair. You, you, you fail to remember that you're made in the image of God. You fail to, to go to Christ and his provisions and partake of them. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Sometimes I, I envision the Holy Spirit grabbing us by the neck, yanking us along to the cross and saying, these are yours in Christ. Grab a hold of them. And don't let yourself fall into despair. Take, take heed. You have what you need in Christ. The conflicting desires that we have in our hearts must not go unchallenged by biblical application and preaching. After all, who can we depend on? Who can we depend on to restructure our thoughts, our desires, our life of obedience? Who can we depend on? Well, not the self, which is oftentimes misguided and unstable and prone to discontent. See, friends, w what we are offering here is not rugged individualism. It's, it's a restoration in the heart for the furtherance of your calling as a family, as a church, as a worshiping community. Who can, who can we depend on? Ultimately, who can we depend on? We must depend on the life-giving Spirit who has brought us to Christ. You must depend on the life-giving Spirit who has brought you to Christ. We must always, at every turn, keep in mind the unswerving, indefatigable loving-kindness of God. God is not at all vexed and, and tired of hearing your laments. He is not at all tired of hearing you cry out to Him in despair and say, Deliver me, please, Lord. Soul, trust in Christ. Trust what He has given me. And that's what preaching to yourself is all about, by the way. The Holy Spirit is the vehicle through which the word is delivered to the heart, and when we commune with him, I mean when we genuinely commune with him in word and prayer, in fellowship, he opens up for us in the heart this exceeding joy, the exceeding joy of our great rock. As I mentioned earlier, the, the redirecting of the human ego, the human heart, the self, towards the things of God is what it means to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. The faith function of the heart, indeed every human heart, is the center of your very being. The soul is the self, and you must attend to it daily. Now, in his book, Spiritual Depression, uh, D. Mar Martin Lloyd-Jones, he writes this, and it's not crazy lengthy, but it's, it's a little bit, and I want you to listen as carefully as you can to this. He says this, The main trouble 
in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment, he's referring to Psalm 42, was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul has been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a minute. I will speak to you. Do you know what I mean? If you do not, you have but little experience. He continues. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then, having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself and defy other people, and defy the devil and the whole world, and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. End quote. That is fire. To deal with your thirsty soul, you must, you must preach to yourself. You must preach to yourself. And here are three steps. I found them in the text. Here they go. Number one. Be sober enough to know there is a problem. Be sober enough to know that there is a problem. That's the first step. If you want to preach to yourself, be sober enough to know that you have a problem. If you lack patience or you get angry easy or, 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 or you're prone to discontentment and despondency in your life, and be sober up enough to know that there is a problem. And you tell yourself, I have a problem. And obviously this requires self-awareness. And the self-awareness presupposes that you're actively, even daily, assessing your life in comparison to Scripture and not others, by the way. Oh, how we measure ourselves to others. You measure yourself to God and His Word. Sobriety comes in dealing honestly. You want to be sober enough to admit you have a problem? You have to deal honestly with yourself. You have to deal honestly with yourself, your spouse, your kids, your parents, uh, your friends, your, your, the church. You have to deal honestly. So no blame shifting and no excuse making. I have a problem. Not, well, I do that because of su such and such or so and so. No, that's not how you deal with it. Step two, take the truths of Scripture and pour yourself over them. Pour out your soul over the scriptures. That's step two. Take the truths of scripture and pour yourself over them. No man has bettered his lot by refusing the means of grace. No biblical doctrine so that when the trial comes, and it will come, you will be ready to tell yourself how to think and how to feel should the need arise. Number three. Step three. So we... Be sober enough to know there's a problem. Number two, take the truths of Scripture and pour yourself over them. Number three, be vigilant in longing for communion with God. Be vigilant. That's that watchfulness stuff. Be vigilant in longing for communion with God. If your heart doesn't want God in that moment, then you tell your heart to desire, to desire your exceeding joy. Soul, you must desire God. He is your greatest good. Soul, he is your exceeding joy. You must run to him. Soul, you must stop 
with the devil's lies. You must stop with thinking terrible theological thoughts about something that's just unbiblical and and all this other nonsense. You have to go to your exceeding joy. Listen, you should be as self you should be as conscious and self-aware of your need for communion with God as you are your need for food. You should be that aware of it. Because there is a spiritual counterpart to being hangry. <laughs> Christ is your anchor, but he's also your grip. He has you in his hands and no one can pluck you out of them. The Heidelberg Catechism is absolutely correct. Your only comfort in life and death, and even in despondency, is that you are not your own. You belong to Christ Jesus, your faithful Savior. Let's pray. Father, we come to you uh, humbled by this passage you have put before us, these two passages that teach us how to have a thirsty soul, a soul that deals honestly with with ourselves, with with each other, with family, with friends. Uh, Father, I pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, beget in us a, a seriousness about what it looks like to be watchful, to not be lazy, to not just try to check out of life for some perceived benefit that ends up just being a waste of time. Help us to, to mature, to grow, to know that you are the fountain of all grace. Help us to know, to call upon your light and your truth to lead us, to bring, you, to bring us to you. And Holy Spirit, may you drag us, if necessary, to the throne of grace because we need it. In Christ's name I pray, amen.